Well, we keep hearing news that people are losing jobs. Yesterday, we talked about Boeing with tons of people now soon to be unemployed. Yet the stock market continues to go up. What's going on? Well, we're here today with our good friend David Stein from Money for the Rest of Us. That's on today's Money with Friends. Welcome to the Money with Friends podcast, coming to you live from my mom's half-finished basement outside Detroit, Michigan, where we make the Stacky Benjamin Show. I'm Joe Salcihi. And I'm David Stein, coming to you from Idaho. This is the podcast where we cover recent stories ripped from the financial press. Today, we're going to tackle one from the New York Times. Not only do we read them, like some podcasts, we're going to dive into today how they affect your wallet, what you can do to invest, save, and pay down debt more effectively. And if that's not enough... David and I today will have a big idea at the end of today's show you can take with you to be better with money the rest of your day and all in usually or around 20 minutes. Today's show is brought to you by Tiller Money. Your financial life in Google Sheets automatically updated every day. It's the most flexible way to track your money in one place. By the way, it doesn't have to be a Google Sheet. It could also be an Excel spreadsheet. For more on how it works, head to tillerhq.com forward slash MWF. And if you like it, by the way, after the trial, you'll get get 10% off your subscription just because you listen to the show. So big thanks to Tiller Money. Thanks to people that used our link. David Stein back for more here on Alumni Week. With all of the craziness happening in the financial markets, we needed somebody a little grounded in that area. I don't know if I've ever used the word grounded to talk about David Stein. No, I'm I'm joking. <laughs> but he he joins us again. How are you, man? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me back. Well, in in all this, the words the word wonderful uh comes up. Like how how did you cope with with uh the whole being stuck at home and uh or like me for you is that kind of more of the same? It 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 was actually pleasant. I and mean, we were we were down in the sunshine in Arizona. We had our daughter with us cuz her university classes were canceled. We had our son and daughter-in-law, because her university classes were, were not canceled, but they're all everything moved online. So we, it was fun. We spent, you know, there's five of us in our house for the past two months, and did a lot of cooking, and just enjoying each other's company. A lot of hiking, and uh, so we, we've been fine. I mean, it's obviously a lot of heartache out there, but you know, you know, our lives didn't change dramatically, other than we just couldn't eat out at restaurants as much as we typically would. But uh, no, we're, we've served, we survived. I'm, I'm, and I wouldn't even call it surviving because it wasn't that hard. Right. So, I mean, there are many, like, I mean, like, I think uh, Jim Wang's uh, on the call. I mean, if he's got young kids. I mean, if you're sequestered with young kids and trying to do your job at the same time and school them, like, that would just be horrific. So... I follow David on Instagram and some of the photos you took. I really like the photos of the the cactus, cacti in bloom with the city down below. Like I remember right. some of those, uh, uh, just some fantastic shots. Like you must have fun just, just with photography, man. It's some beautiful shots. Uh, we do. You know, I, it, um, it's fun to do. I've always liked it. My son's a professional photographer, so you know he now now he's giving me tips. So that's that's been good. 
And uh, it turns out professional photographers have to get up really, really early to get good light. And uh, sometimes he'd, he'd carry me along. So, Well, hopefully, speaking of light, you can shine a little light on things today because we're going to talk about the stock market versus the economy. We're hearing two totally different things. Today's piece David brought to us uh, comes to us from the New York Times, by the way, and it is repeat after me, the markets are not the economy. This is written by Matt Phillips. And David, if you don't mind, uh, d d do the honors, please. Sure. It says the stock market looks increasingly divorced from economic reality. The United States is on the brink of the worst economic collapse since the Hoover administration. Corporate profits have crumbled. More than a million Americans have contracted the coronavirus and hundreds are dying each day. There is no turnaround in sight, yet stocks keep climbing. Even as 20.5 million people lost their jobs in April, the S&P 500 stock index logged its best month in 33 years. After a few weeks of wild swings, the market is down a mere 9.3% this year and 13.5% from its peak, what most investors would consider a correction. On Friday, after the government released the staggering unemployment figures, the S&P 500 closed up 1.7%. Conventional wisdom would explain the market's comparatively modest losses this way. Since markets tend to be forward-looking, investors have already accounted for what's expected to be a cataclysmic drop in second quarter activity and are forecasting a relatively rapid economic recovery afterwards. The Federal Reserve's actions have also bolstered investors' confidence that the bottom won't fall, fall out of the market. But the pandemic has also highlighted a deeper trend. For decades, the market has been growing increasingly detached from the mainstream of American life, mirroring broad changes in the economy. Wall Street's very little to do with Main Street, said Joaquin Clement, a market analyst at Liberium Capital in London, and less and less so. Still, the market retains its grip on the collective imagination. From politicians and corporate executives to mom-and-pop investors, Americans have long relied on the stock market as a proxy for the U.S. economy for reasons that are partly historical. Its crest suggested bright days ahead, while its trough suggested a darkening outlook. The current economic fallout, however, could snap any illusion that the logic of the market is derived in any consistent way from real world events. Part of the reason is the makeup of the stock market and the fact that the giant companies that make up the S&P 500 operate under very different circumstances than the nation's small businesses, workers and cities and states. They're highly profitable, hold significant sums of cash and have regular access to public bond markets. They're far more global than a typical American family firm. Roughly 40% of the revenues of S&P 500 companies come from abroad. 2015, about 600,000 U.S. companies counted at least 20 employees, and only 3,600 of those, or less than 1%, were publicly listed, said Renee Stoltz, a professor of finance at Ohio State University who studied the changing composition of publicly traded markets. Because of the financial strength the big companies make them more likely to survive the downturn, their share prices tend to underplay the impact of a widespread economic collapse. In fact, market indexes like the S&P 500 are weighted to reflect the performance of the largest and most profitable companies. In recent weeks, the stocks of such companies have not only veered in the opposite direction, the outlook of the, of the U.S. economy, but from the rest of the stock market itself. And the piece continues to go down that uh, go down that avenue, talking about the difference between the top stocks in the U.S. and uh, what the economy does in general. 
Is this a trend that you think is going to continue, David? Well, number one, do you agree with the piece? Let's talk about that first. And then number two, assuming that you do, because that's why you brought it to the table, if you do agree with the piece, is this going to be a bigger trend that we can't look at the stock market and, and think that the stock market and the economy have much in common? Well, the stock market has never been the economy, but the stock market still very much depends on the economy. So when you look at uh, in, in the piece, it talked about tech, technology stocks, healthcare. They make up 40% of the S&P 500 index, which is a measure of U.S. large company stocks. As a part of the economy, in terms of, if we're talking about the economy, which is the measure of output, what's the goods and services produced, healthcare and, and information technology only make up about 13%. And so even the makeup of the economy, I mean, the biggest component of the economy in the U.S. is government federal, local, and state, including teachers. That's about 13% of the economy. You can't buy a stock, a publicly traded stock, in your, in your local school system. If those people have jobs, the U.S. government is running huge trillion-dollar deficits. That money, where does it go? It goes to households. It goes to businesses that buy products from publicly traded companies. And so when we talk about yeah, the, the stock market performance can differ, from what the economy is doing, companies, publicly traded companies that have stocks are very much dependent on government and other aspects of the economy in order for the stocks to go up. The, the, uh, the frustration then, I guess, that a lot of people have is, is then I, I, things feel bad. But if I have money in stocks, then, hey, uh, maybe I can make myself feel less bad. Like, like wh wh what are the things that I do if I, if, I, if I can't rely on the economy to tell me which way I think the stock market's going to go? How do I then invest in something like the S&P 500, which increasingly, according to this piece and what, what uh, you're talking about, is, is, fewer and fewer, is driven by fewer and fewer companies? Well, first off, historically changes in the economy did impact the stock market. It went down. When corporate earnings fall, the stock market fell. Now the, the corporate earnings are falling and the stock market is rising. What has changed? Well, one, central banks, such as the Federal Reserve, are way more proactive in, in what they're willing to buy. They're not suggesting they're gonna buy stocks yet, but they certainly are buying bonds of many of those publicly traded companies. Many of those bonds, which are under, were under severe distress in March, and so, you know, in some regards, you almost want to put your hands up and say, all right, the central bank has my back as an investor. The federal government does. I might as well just invest because markets in some ways are, are heavily manipulated by, by those very large entities that can overwhelm uh, or, or certainly and made the, took the right steps, but certainly have influenced how the stock market has performed. I was on, on a call earlier today with somebody from uh, one of the book publishers. We were talking about a, a project that, that we're working on right now. And, uh, and she was bringing up, fundamentally, there's this question of trust, right? And when you talk about the, 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 the Federal Reserve uh, and, and uh, uh, having my back, or, or you talk about the huge amounts of stimulus, although one guest on our show recently talked about it's not stimulus, it's, it's just handouts. There's nothing to stimulate, right? Not much, not oh, much right. to stimulate as much as we just got to keep things moving. But, but, you know, yesterday you and I talked a little bit about Ray Dalio. People like Ray Dalio say, that's fine for today. And 
the stock market may go up today, but they're still going to be held to pay later. Is there going to be held to pay later? And is the stock market then a mirage because of it? At some point, it needs to reflect what's happening in the economy. Is it just the, the, we don't get the, I feel like maybe we have the tsunami and the storm surges later that comes from it. Well, it depends. I mean, the stock market typically bottoms five months before a recession ends. So it's it's typical for it to, to, to rebound. This time it was much more compressed. When you look at what Ray Dalio and others that are, are a little more pessimistic, they're worried about the lack of trust. So when investors no longer trust the Federal Reserve or no longer trust the U.S. dollars, and don't want to hold assets in U.S. dollars, want to hold gold or, or other currencies, that's when he's worried. But that that could be decades out, and that's what makes it difficult. What's happening now is unprecedented. The level to which the U.S. economy, the global economy, shut down. The GDP, the, the measure of economic growth, uh, will probably contract at a 40% annual rate in the second quarter. I mean, we've never had this level of... A performance. And yet the stock market has been going up, just assuming this is a temporary blip. And if it turns out, and hopefully it is a temporary blip, the pandemic, and everything will be just fine. The risk is that there is a big second wave. They have to shut down more of, of the economy again, and earnings don't recover for a number of years. And then you get markets selling off. But we don't know that. And so as investors, all we can do is say, is my portfolio that I own now, if it fell 50%, would I be okay? And if you wouldn't, then you should have less in stocks. If you can survive it, whether things continue to go well or they collapse by 40 to 50%, then, then, you, should, then you can hold it. And that, that's all we can do just because of how unprecedented this is. Well, when you talk about unprecedented, that brings up my next question, which is looking at the... Uh, We've always had an expectation of stocks, right? That stocks and real estate historically are the two things. And by real estate, I mean like the North American re-index. Um, historically have, have, have done the most consistent job of beating inflation. So because of that, those are the two places where you could reliably invest for long periods of time. And you're going to have some level of safety over the long term. Is that still... Are those expectations still the case if this is unprecedented? Do I stick with stocks for the long term? Well, I think you can stick with stocks for the long term because they, you know, we will continue to have companies that make profits at some point. And if you own an index fund or ETF, it will reflect the, the adaptations within the economy. Stocks relative to bonds, you know, the dividend yield on stocks are are attractive relative to very, very low interest rates right now. So that's something in favor of stocks. REITs are a little more challenging because you know, a portion of REITs is offices, office buildings. If many, many businesses have announced that their workers are going to be remote going forward. And so we don't know at this point the impact on commercial real estate prices as people decide they're going to work from home. The benefit of REITs, though, that it is very diversified. So there is a large segment of REITs that do that aren't as cyclical. Apartments, storage units, cell phone towers, industrial. And so if you're going to invest in REITs, doing it broad-based with an index fund ETF is a way to play for it, but is to invest. But 
REITs have not recovered like the stock market has. They're still down 20% year to date. Yeah, but well, and is that you think that's? I would imagine that's mostly because they think the the commercial sectors is uh, and retail. Well, right stores, good, good small, point. Yeah, and retail. Right. Yeah, yeah, getting pummeled. Yeah. But to some degree, I would think retail may come back. Where I kind of think that the nature of work going into an office space, though, David, may be changed forever. I, yeah, I don't know because we've had this trend before, right? Everybody goes and works from home, and, and then it's sort of like, well, we need collaboration. And so then people have to go back to the office. So I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, I continue to own REITs. They're, they're in the model portfolios I run. But it, it's been a, a frustrating asset class because they've sold off so much. But REITs, you know, through year-end 2019, returned double digits annualized, really going back 3, 5, 10, 25, 40 years. But they got hit in the, the first quarter through April, but they've still returned 7% annualized. And so, and what REITs benefit from is, is they have about a four to and a half percent dividend yield. Yeah. And so you get that. And so I continue to own them, but there are clearly some uncertainties and risk with REITs right now that weren't there prior to the pandemic. Uh, we do this uh, live. We fund it live uh, in uh, on our uh, Stack of Benjamins Facebook page. Head to facebook.com forward slash iStackBenjamins for more. Adrian has a question that I don't know that, that we can answer. Adrian, this might be above our pay grade, but we'll see if David wants this one. Uh, company debt is very high. We don't treat big businesses. We do small businesses and individuals. When they take out more debt, the banks don't stop them like we would. An individual who'd be rejected by banks due to the risk uh, to, uh, to their to, to their balance sheets. Workers didn't take out those loans is, is, is the way that ends. And, and, and yet I do think though, Adrian, I mean, I, I guess I'll chime in a little here. I think that, uh, uh, companies take on debt based on their credit risk, David, just like a person does. I mean, to some degree, there's a, to a huge degree, there's a credit analyst there saying, is the company good for it? Yes, but it's, it's been easier for these, these, publicly traded companies to issue debt because they could issue bonds unlike a, a small business had to go to a bank to get a loan. Big businesses could issue bonds and the Federal Reserve announced that they were buying trillions of dollars of those bonds. And even if those bonds got downgraded to junk, the Federal Reserve would still buy those bonds. And so it was somewhat of an uneven playing field for these publicly traded companies compared to private businesses. And even with the, the Main Street lending program, with that money got sucked up very quickly by bigger companies because they already had relationships with their banks and the banks were willing to make the loans because it wasn't like, you know, many of these private businesses never borrowed money before and had never faced the uncertainty that they 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 felt. And as a result, they were not able to get the, the borrowings that bigger companies were able to. To, to Adrian's point, Let's go back to yesterday in airlines, because I read a point of view a couple of weeks ago that said that, you know, airlines lately have been viewed as too big to fail in this downturn. Right. So we need to support airlines. We need to we, we need to help airlines. And yet, David, when it comes to airlines, what this person said is essentially what we really need are the planes. We don't need the airline. We need the planes. And the planes are a commodity that are there. And if an, if an airline goes under, there will be 
another entrepreneur who will take that risk and airlines will then will then work. So this idea that we need to save the airlines to this person's viewpoint was not was not really factual. We need the planes and we have the planes. What do you what do you think about that? No, you're right. <laughs> I think that's a novel way to look at it because I think it, I think the listener's correct. <laughs> I mean, most of the plane the planes didn't go anywhere. I mean, you the planes are sitting in Arizona at an airfield down by Tucson, and they're sitting in a storage unit in California, an airplane there. They're just parked, waiting to be used again. And so you're right. And that's been some of the frustration, I think, with many that, you know, this too big to fail, that, you know, many of these publicly traded companies, you know, they spend a lot of money buying back their stock over the years, and now they're able to get loans, and they got the Federal Reserve stepping in. Now, there certainly are employees of those companies that would be hurt, but yeah, that that's, it's just one of the biggest challenges out there. But because government and the Federal Reserve has done that, that has propelled the stock market very much higher. And again, that has benefited the wealthy more than, than others because the wealthy tend to own most stocks compared to those that, that don't make as much. And that is a problem that we are not going to solve on the podcast today, unfortunately. If we could solve that problem, David, that would that'd be a whole different, be, be a whole different thing. Uh, in just a second, David and I are going to have some takeaways from today's show. But before we get there, I want to say a big thanks to Tiller Money for supporting Money with Friends because, uh, uh, and the reason I asked them to support the show is because I use Tiller Money to not only track my money but to create a budget. And for those of you that uh, are wondering why I bring up those two things, it's because they're actually different. Tracking your money shows where you've been. Setting up a budget is where you are headed. And now more than ever, where so many people have income uncertainty, knowing where you've been is important so that you can try to figure out how you make ends meet later. You can't bury your head in the sand. And what I like about Tiller Money, well, you can bury your head in the sand, I suppose, but it doesn't end anywhere good. If you're not going to bury your head in the sand and you want to be the CFO of your family, the best way to do it is to have a tracking system that you can use easily, that's flexible. And for me, Tiller Money does that. Because it's based on a spreadsheet, you can slice the information however is best for you. And what's cool is there's a whole community of people that have made templates that work with Tiller. You can check it out yourself, tillerhq.com forward slash MWF. That's tillerhq.com forward slash MWF. If you like it as much as I do, you will end up, uh, if you use our link, with uh, 10% off your subscription fee. So big thanks to Tiller for supporting Money with Friends. And you're welcome to everybody who's, who's used our link because uh, you just got 10% off because you're smart enough to listen to our show. David, what is, what's our big takeaway here today? Well, the, the takeaway is that the stock market will not always track growth in the economy, but the stock market will only go up long-term if economic growth exists. And if there is a pool of households and businesses that actually have income that they can spend on products that these companies sell. Facebook, for example, Google, 70 to 90%, actually in the case of Facebook, 98.5% of their revenue comes from advertising. Who's buying that advertising? Mostly small businesses which make up a big portion of the economy. The stock market is extremely dependent on the success of 
of households and businesses long term. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, I don't have much to add except that this idea that you brought to the table with this piece that the economy is not the stock market very important for us to know as investors that just because we're seeing uh, uh, horrible economic data does not mean the stock market can't go up and the stock market going up doesn't mean everything is great right <laughs> doesn't mean that okay. does it doesn't mean that we're doing well over the short term maybe but but it just seems. It does seem to me that there, there's, there's definitely is always more to come. David, you have this awesome podcast called Money for the Rest of Us. Uh, tell everybody what you do there and what's coming up uh, on the show. Well, sure. Uh, we have a weekly show about money, investing in the economy, including the topic uh, today. We I did an episode a few weeks ago on the stock market is not the economy. And, and we try, go into even more depth on some of the studies that show the disconnect but also show the long-term important relationship between the two. I absolutely love it. I don't know a storyteller better than David, especially for a topic of money that's so important and his ability to, uh, to, 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 to make these ideas tangible that uh, people have so much trouble explaining is why I love the show and why David goes out uh, hiking with me often, put in my earbuds, take some money for, for the rest of us with me and uh, have a good time. So, by the way, thanks for hanging out with us again. It was good to catch up. No, it's great to be here. Thanks, Anytime. thanks everybody who hung out with us today on Facebook. Thanks to everybody who listened. People have left us a review lately. Thank you so much for your reviews of the show. It's good to see uh, so many people liking what what we do. Coming up tomorrow, super exciting. Uh, Bobby and I with uh, well. Tomorrow, we're going to have a regular show. On Monday, we're revealing the new cast of season four. So uh, more fun people like David joining us for the next four months. I'm Baffa David. I'm Joe. We'll see you back here next time at Money with Friends. Bye-bye. This show is created and hosted by Joe Saul Cihai and Bobby Rebel and is a joint venture of BRK Media LLC and Stacking Benjamins LLC, copyright 2020. Ryan Sini and Nicole Thornhill from Pro Podcast Solutions engineered this show and Ashley Wall is the producer. For a list of the thought leaders who appear on the podcast, head to our website, moneywithfriendspodcast.com. You can also check out our schedule for upcoming recording sessions so you can join us and be a part of the show. As with anything, remember, you shouldn't take advice from any of us or other video or podcasts without first talking to your financial advisor and that the people in this episode are here for your and their entertainment purposes only. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you back here next time with another episode of Money with Friends. <laughs>